And so I, I do have a sense of faith in my neighbors and in our communities and in our families to make this country really worthy of its people and to remember that it's been a very short time that this country has been a nation and an even shorter time that it has been one that could even pretend to be a truly representative democracy without explicit exclusion of people of color and women. And so this is an experiment that we have not yet perfected. Hello, welcome to The Resisters, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. On today's show, we talk with Heather McGee. Heather is president of Demos, a public policy organization working for an America where all people have an equal say in our democracy and an equal chance in our economy. She also leads Demos Action, a fiscally sponsored project of the Advocacy Fund, a 501c4 nonprofit. You may have seen Heather on Meet the Press, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Hardball with Chris Matthews, or you may have read her writing in the New York Times, The Nation, and The Hill. I first got to know Heather in 2009 when she co-chaired a task force with Americans for Financial Reform that helped shape key provisions of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. And just a few weeks ago, Heather spoke at the inaugural Obama Foundation Summit. We'll get into all of that in this conversation. Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with the resistors. Great to be here, Chris. Um, I wanted to start with a big question. How would you assess the condition of our multiracial democracy (laughs) in the Trump era? Uh, do you think it's sustaining irreparable damage or simply revealing its longstanding flaws or experiencing a painful rebirth or something entirely else? That's a great question, Chris. And I, I think you ask me that question particularly because of the mission of our organization. Demos is the Greek word for the people and the root word of democracy. And our mission is to create an America where we all, regardless of background, have an equal say in our democracy and an equal chance in our economy. And here at Demos, we would argue that in some ways, the United States is the world's boldest experiment in democracy because of its multiracial, multicultural nature that it's been since the beginning, even though racial lines have shifted uh, uh, over time, uh, who counts as white, who counts as alien, who counts as other, uh, has changed over time. This core identity of the nation being one that is made up of many different peoples, peoples who were ancestral strangers from one another, who have ties to every community on the globe. This, we believe, is what makes America truly great, and that the millennial generation, which is the largest and most diverse generation in American history, is really going to be the one to see America fulfill its promise. So we would say that the multiracial democracy has always been the aspiration and has never yet been attained. Political power and equality of voice uh, has always been um, racially constrained. It's always been, over the course of American history, uh, a striving towards uh, really becoming a real democracy. Democracy is a pretty radical concept, and there have been 
uh, fits and starts. And right now we are at, I would say, definitely an ebb in terms of our progress towards making sure that where you were born and the language you speak uh, and your background does not determine how much say you have over the decisions that affect your life. So many progressive postmortems of the 2016 election have chosen either one or other um, side of a binary to explain Trump's election, that it was the economy or that it was racism. And I wonder what you think happened. Again, a big question. Uh, big question, but the right one, because I think if we don't get our analysis correct about what happened in 2016, we can't make the course corrections that are necessary uh, to build uh, the political movement and the government that this country really deserves. I think one of the big flaws in our thinking around this issue, uh, particularly in sort of democratic commentary, uh, is the idea that um, racism is this sort of individual evil sin that is a stain that you are marked upon, marked with at birth and that continues with you for life. And for good reason, many people, particularly white people in the political elite and the Democratic Party, are hesitant to write off, uh, you know, some big plurality of the country as falling in that evil camp, right? Because that's the way we understand racism. But I think that racism is something that is uh, an idea that is sold aggressively to people uh, for profit. And we have to be clear about the fact that um, over the past 10 years through Fox News and Breitbart and the rest of the right-wing propaganda machine, and then over the year of the Trump presidency, white Americans, particularly those who were seeing their economic and social status fall into question, were being sold aggressively, marketed this idea that there is a zero-sum competition between the races and the genders, and that if they, if people of color and women are having progress, then that has to be at their expense. And so there's this incredible difficulty that so many um, Democratic elites have um, when trying to make sense of the Obama to Trump voter, because it's like, oh, no, uh, an Obama to Trump voter couldn't have been racist, because how could they ever have voted for Obama? But Trump changed the political and cultural conversation in this country so effectively, particularly the fact that he had wall-to-wall coverage. I mean, whatever his message was, was broadcast uh, to a degree that we've, we've frankly never seen a presidential candidate. And his relentless narrative of uh, white people under siege, of people of color and women as threatening the social order and tying that to a sense of nostalgia that is really well-deserved about the economic position of white men without college educations in a, a foregone era, in the post-war era, um, was an extremely powerful cocktail. So I think that it is both, it was both racial resentment that was driven through and made palatable and acceptable socially by being driven through an economic story. The idea that we needed to both go back to a post-war period of working class jobs paying well, 
And that part of what had gone wrong was not the fact that, you know, uh, wealthy people and corporations have rigged the rules in their favor, but the fact that they've rigged the rules in favor somehow of African Americans and Latinos and new immigrants uh, and women, uh, which is, of course, absurd on its face if you think about how much um, working class people of color and women are still struggling in this economy, much more so even uh, than men, no matter white men, no matter what their background. Um, but it was very easy, particularly with the right wing propaganda machine, uh, to make that narrative very compelling and shift the way that many, uh, particularly white men, but also women, were able to view uh, the stakes of the election and what they were really fighting for. I, I think that some of our listeners may have first discovered you, Heather, on C SPAN back in August 2016 when you took a call from a white man in North Carolina named Gary. Can you describe that moment? Sure. So this was uh, the August before the 2016 election. I was on a show on C-SPAN called Washington Journal, which is basically just sort of a radio call-in show, but on TV. And I was there discussing politics and policy. And about halfway through the call, I hear a voice saying, you know, he had identified himself, he had identified himself as Gary from North Carolina. And he said, I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. I kind of took a deep breath and kind of steeled myself for a kind of racist Obama conspiracy theory rant, perhaps. Um, But he went on to describe his prejudice, his prejudice against black men and gangs and crimes in the inner city. And then he said, but I want to change. And I want to know what you can suggest that I do to become, in his words, a better American. And I responded um, to that question just with the first thing that came to my mind, which was, thank you. Thank you for having the courage to admit your prejudice, um, because that's one of the most powerful things that we can do. I mean, this was, you know, in the middle of a very racially charged election year where Donald Trump was saying that Mexicans were rapists and criminals and then denying that he had a racist bone in his body. So here this sort of everyday guy from rural North Carolina admitting on national television that he was prejudiced was, I think, a a real act of courage. I gave him some ideas really off the top of my head about what he could do to sort of integrate his life and, and compare in real in the real world the experience of black people and the truth of our history uh, with the shallow stereotypes that I could tell he was really getting from uh, from the media. And that a clip of that call, our exchange, that three minutes uh, went viral. There were over 8 million views. And Gary himself uh, saw some of the press coverage and took to Twitter for the first time uh, to find me. His first tweet was, how does this thing work? <laughs> And uh, so I I responded and gave him my phone number and he called me and he told me that my response to him had deeply touched him and that he had taken my advice and that it was what he needed to put himself on a path towards really changing his life. And um, I've gotten to know Gary over the past year and he has really made understanding people of color, understanding our history, reading, uh, turning off the TV and picking up a book, um, 
you know, his life's work now. And it's been really, really beautiful and encouraging to see. Um, Because even though I believe deeply in uh, the construct of, you know, the most powerful form of racism in our society is not the individual fear-based prejudice, but rather is, you know, the way that racism is baked into our structures and laws and policies. But at the same time, that individual fear-based prejudice is, uh, is very much omnipresent. Uh, it's very much something, as I said, that has been deliberately stoked for profit by uh, right-wing media and by right-wing politicians. When that kind of individual fear-based prejudice is uh, stoked and then weaponized for political gain, we get things like Donald Trump and we get things like a Republican Party that has uh, the majority of white voters supporting it uh, to and giving it political permission to uh, to redistribute wealth upwards away from uh, families of color as well as working in middle class white families. You know, many of the conversations on this podcast have focused on the marches, the protests, the town halls. Um, the calls to your member of Congress in order to make sure that Trump's most harmful proposals never become policy. But I wonder if an equally important part of the resistance to what's happening right now in this country is bridge building like yours and Gary's in the sense that perhaps it might restore some of the democratic fabric, um, that sense of connectedness that could undermine Trump's attempts to divide Americans. I think that's a really good point, Chris, and really well said. Um, I think that I don't use the term resistance very much. Um, I and Demos talks about um, needing a visionary opposition, right? An opposition, um, because in fact, you know, Trump and the Republicans are the ones that are resisting progress, that are resisting um, and denying the beauty of what we're becoming as a truly multiracial, multicultural democracy. Um, and we are opposed and we are in principled opposition to the vision of the country and the, the undemocratic takeover of power that has happened in our economy and in our government at all levels. Um, but we have a vision about it. We want to say not just what we're against, but what we're for. So, for example, not only are we opposed to repealing the Affordable Care Act and the 20 million uh, Americans who have been able to afford health coverage that weren't before the Affordable Care Act, but we are for Medicare for all, and we are for truly universal health care that saves all of us money and leads to better uh, health outcomes. For example, we're not just against trillions of dollars in tax cuts to the wealthy, but we are for rewriting our tax code so that there is sufficient revenue to fund our schools, um, make the transition to clean energy, creating tens of millions of jobs, uh, you know, invest in our common future. Um, We are sick of having to choose between, uh, you know, uh, repealing uh, so much of what we have left and uh, asking for just a little bit more. This is a time of record economic inequality in this country. And it's a time when the political establishment uh, in both parties has lost the faith um, of, of working in middle class people of all races and genders and faiths who see that 
working hard and playing by the rules is not enough, that mass incarceration, mass deportations, joblessness, uh, no bargaining power uh, in, in the workplace, um, environmental degradation, the fact that climate change is real and present and costing us our health and, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And yet, for the sake of the profits of a few companies, we are not able to do anything about it. Th- that all of those indictments of um, what people in power are doing and not doing to make our lives better and to be responsible stewards uh, of this planet are enough, I think, to create the basis for a movement that is much more visionary, much more bold and transformational. And I think that's what we are seeing come out of the sort of ashes of, of, the, uh, of the 2016 election. Well, I appreciate your saying that because I think so many of us find ourselves necessarily in a defensive posture, you know, defending against the worst attacks mm-hmm. by the Trump administration on many communities uh, and institutions and values that we hold dear. Um, but I've always admired how you and Demos articulate also a, a proactive, progressive vision. Yeah. I think that this time when Democrats have uh, less governing power than they have, I think, uh, since at any time since the Civil War, um, we need to take this moment to really define in a much more ambitious and authentic way what it means to be a progressive, who all is included, um, how uh, how much transformation we're really seeking. And I think that right now in politics, authenticity truly matters. And we are seeing at Demos uh, a real prairie fire of people coming out to run for office who have never run before, who want to change their communities, who represent their communities. And it is so exciting. And so we are going to be helping candidates like that, um, you know, articulate a bold vision that they can really believe in. And that won't be a compromise um, between, you know, financial interests and the donors of campaigns, because the American people are really hurting. Um, And if we don't uh, put out big, bold, visionary ideas like ending the burden of student debt with really debt-free public college for all, tens of millions of clean energy jobs, universal child care, universal health care. Um, if we don't say that that is truly possible, because of course it is, um, and if we don't say that it's affordable, because of course it is, and if we don't say that it's in the national interest, because of course it is, then what reason is the progressive base going to have to turn out to vote? Um, we think it's extremely important that people are uh, have the right to vote and have the freedom and opportunity to vote, and we fight every day to make that possible at Demos, um, whether through litigation or through advocacy. We're going to the Supreme Court in a few months to to protect the voter rolls in Ohio from voter suppression activities there. Um, but we also think it's important for people to have to have to be able to have a reason to vote, to think that it's going to be powerful for them to vote, to think that it could potentially change their lives and their children's lives for them to vote. And Democrats have not given, I think, uh, often enough a compelling case that it really is that powerful and it could be transformational. It seems like Donald Trump falls in a long line of populist candidates 
whose populism divided us. And I wonder if you can think of examples in history or recent history uh, of a more progressive populism that actually unites us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is really the question. You know, at Demos, we are um, becoming a strategic hub for a vision of a multiracial, inclusive populism. Um, because it's just simply an illusion to think that you can have a populism that depends on, you know, the the dreams and the struggles and the aspirations of working class people and not have that rooted in the people who are predominantly working class in this country, which is, you know, African-Americans and Latinos, uh, immigrants, single women, young people who are the ones who are, um, you know, make up the sh- you know the dominant share of the working class. And so I think that we have never really gotten it completely right. And the urgency to get it right is is now and is ahead of us as our nation becomes more diverse as uh, the youngest generation is already here in that uh, plurality and as the working class has already become uh, so much more diverse. Uh, it's incumbent upon us to get it right. I think there have been, um, you know, I think a lot about Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. You know, he really did try at sort of the last moment before the Democratic Leadership Council ended up taking over and taking the Democratic Party in a different direction to make the case that you can be about labor rights and worker workers' rights and be about civil rights in the same party. Um, and, you know, I have tremendous respect for Secretary Clinton and, you know, obviously wish that she were in the White House right now instead of its current occupant. Um, But I do believe that it's time for the Democratic Party to have a reckoning with what uh, the the movement that the Clintons really were the face of and began to change our party and make it more one that was socially liberal, but fiscally uh, and financially conservative uh, and willing to redistribute wealth upwards. And I think that that is, was an unholy uh, marriage. Uh, and it is costing us not just white working class people, but most importantly, you know, the true progressive base, which is those who struggle economically, which is going to be predominantly people of color and women who, you know, are not going to be satisfied with the, uh, you know, Democratic politicians saying they're socially liberal while picking their pockets um, by letting banks write the rules and letting corporations uh, bust unions. I was really interested in your remarks last week at the inaugural Obama Foundation Summit. Uh, Something you said about the economy, you described it as a massive multiplayer game. Can you explain what you meant? (laughs) Yeah. So I think we often... Uh, think about the economy as something that is uh, kind of directed by unseen natural forces that we really have no control over. Um, the sort of underlying metaphor that we often use is 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 like the weather. You know, it's something you just have to uh, prepare for. It's something you have to respond to, but it's not something that we can really control. And in fact, I think a more apt metaphor for an economy is a a massive multiplayer game where the most powerful players, usually government officials and business executives, are constantly able to change the rules to make it harder for some players and some teams to score points. And like in a game, uh, individual effort and determination and skill matter, uh, but 
the rules of the game determine the outcome. And it also matters, oftentimes, most importantly, what team you start out on. And so I like to give a more, I think, empowering uh, story about how an economy works than most people walk through their lives with when they hear the stock market report on the radio, like the weather report, it's up, it's down, we, you know, we don't know what to do. Um, because I think that, you know, history shows that um, in a democracy, we should have the power to write the rules. And by the rules, I mean, the tax rules, the rules around how easy or hard it is to form a union, uh, the rules around how easy it, hard it, or hard it is for big companies to merge with one another, um, how easy or hard it is for people to get affordable loans or affordable health care or affordable child care or live in the neighborhood of their choosing uh, with schools that are funded Uh, not by local property taxes, but in a more equitable way. These are all of the rules that are sort of hidden to most of us uh, that really do determine the reward that we get from the effort that we put in. And um, so I think it's really empowering to displace that kind of idea of the economy as weather uh, with an idea of the economy as a game. And in addition to the rules, uh, you you say that the very purpose of the game has changed since your parents were born. That's right. Um, Because you have to think, okay, you know, as the most powerful players are changing the rules all the time, what's their purpose, right? What's the guiding uh, theory of what would make them change the rule in one direction or another? And I think that um, in the post-war period, and this is where Trump's nostalgia finds purchase, in the post-war period in the 19... Uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, there was a sense that the purpose of the game of the economy uh, was to create a strong middle class. And there were a lot of reasons why um, that were not just about benevolence, uh, that that was deemed to be by the powers that were at that time in their own interest. Um, And of course, there was the limitation and the idea that the the beneficiaries of those rule changes were typically white men. Um, there was a social contract among white men um, of all ethnic and, and educational backgrounds that um, work would be rewarded um, and that there would be um, work would receive some of the gains from, from productivity. And I like to note that the inequality era that we're currently living in that has really come to us since the late 1970s and the 1980s is one in which women and people of color demanded a seat at the table. And then the social contract was frayed. And so what is our challenge right now is to make redefine the purpose of the economy, which I would say for all of my lifetime from the 80s to today, uh, has been better articulated by Ronald Reagan saying, Uh, Most of all, I want an America where people can still get rich, right? The trickle-down theory has been the purpose of the economy. And we need to articulate, and I think it'll be up to our generation to do this, a new purpose where the purpose is to forge solidarity across lines of color and class and origin uh, to make an economy that recognizes the human capacity within all of us. With so much at stake Where is Demos focusing its attention at the moment? Great question. Um, So we are um, emerging from the first, you know, 10 months of the Trump administration where we really 
uh, locked arms with a number of partners who are in the kind of overall resistance and in the overall opposition. Um, and visionary opposition. The visionary opposition, that's right. Um, and did a lot of, you know, sort of defensive work, exactly what you were talking about, um, to really pivoting now to understanding what our role is as an organization in an ecosystem where there really is a struggle going on for the heart of the Democratic Party. There is a struggle going on for the heart of a progressive movement, how ambitious we need to be. And so we are focused on still protecting the the right to vote and the freedom to vote, uh, which we think is essential, but also really putting out uh, an economic agenda, a set of messages and stories, um, sort of campaign talking points and briefing books to help those candidates um, all across the country who are, um, you know, looking for a way to uh, offer up a vision of a multiracial populism that says, yes, uh, economic inequality matters, but so does racial and gender inequality. And we can really all... Um, have a better shot at a better life um, if these not only are these barriers taken down, but if there is more of a sense of solidarity across race and across our differences. So we are really excited about um, using both our 501c3 nonprofit and our 501c4 Demos Action to really contend for uh, our role uh, with a number of different partners in helping to shape uh, a multiracial, inclusive populism as a progressive vision for the country. So I know you have to go in a minute, but Heather, I did want to ask, what motivates you to do what you do? That's a great question, Chris. Um, you know, I'm the descendant of uh, enslaved people from the American South, and my grandparents moved up from the South to Chicago and Cleveland, uh, in the period of the Great Migration, and their dreams, their struggles, um, their faith in um, the future is something that is what created me as a human being, and it's something that I continue to have as a touchstone even in difficult times. Even when times are tough and it looks as though this country is, you know, falling down a spiral of um, fake news, social distrust, propaganda, selfishness, um, I think about my ancestors and how they had to deal with much more and they had far less um, with which to take on those challenges than I do and than we do at this moment in history. And so I, I do have a sense of faith in my neighbors and in our communities and in our families um, to make this country really worthy of its people um, and to remember that it's been a very short time that this country has been a nation and an even shorter time that it has been one that could even pretend to be a truly representative democracy without um, explicit exclusion of people of color and women. And so this is an experiment that we have not yet perfected. And um, that gives me faith, that gives me hope, that helps motivate me to keep fighting. Well, Heather, thanks for taking the time to sit down and, and 
I think I speak for a lot of the people listening. Thank you for being a leading voice, helping society recover from the moment in history in which we're currently living, but also looking to a, a better future. Thank you, Chris. That does it for this episode of The Resistors. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Heather, Liz DeBold, and the whole Demos and Demos Action team. You can connect with them at demos.org. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resistors on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresistors.co.